Welcome to the AAUC monthly podcast series on building our collective American dream. I'm Dr. S.K. Lowe, President of Asian American Unity Coalition, or in short, AAUC. I'd like to introduce Mr. Jack Hanna, our podcast program director, who will give us his comment on this podcast as well. In this September episode, we focus on what is the global perspective for Asian Americans, the challenges we face, and how we can build our collective American dream together. Asian American has an important role to play in bridging the widening gap between US and the rise of Asia. How should we view ourselves and be viewed? Is this dual identity an advantage or a burden? What is the global perspective on the anti-Asian hate crime? How can Asian Americans make a difference in the U.S.? We are very fortunate today to have our outstanding guests, Dr. Parag Khanna, a globalist, a futurist, and author of many publications, including his latest book, Move, are on the bestseller list. Dr. Parag Khanna will share with us his unique perspective on the subject. Let's go to Rajiv Singh, an AUC member representative for Hindu American Foundation, who is our host today. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Rajiv Singh. My guest today is Parag Khanna, who is founder and managing partner of FutureMap, a scenario-based strategic advisory firm. Parag has authored six books that I believe are bestsellers, and he holds a PhD from London School of Economics. Welcome, Parag. Thank you. So, Parag, do tell us a bit more about how did you end up doing what you do? Everything is on the internet already, but maybe I can provide a little bit more color to a very colorful space. I was born in India, as you were as well. I grew up my childhood in the United Arab Emirates and Dubai and Abu Dhabi. We moved to New York when I was uh, six years old, and I grew up mostly in New York, but I did complete high school in Germany as an exchange student before returning to the U.S. I've spent much of my life traveling, so that shaped who I am as much as where I'm from and the many places that I've lived. So taken together, I would say I've become something of a globalist. But of course, the formative years of my life as an Asian American are obviously the ones that are most significant in my core identity, if you will. My family still lives in the US. I happen to coincidentally be an expat now living in Singapore, though we lived in Germany before this, in London as well, and have bounced around as a family too. But that's my upbringing. I'm an academic by training. I've worked in the U.S. government and the Defense Department. I've worked in quite a few think tanks in Washington, and I've done a lot of work advising governments and companies about how to navigate globalization. Parag, as an Asian American, as an immigrant in general, faced overt hostility here in the United States. What is your perspective on the true extent of it, and what's the way forward here? individual phenomena, whether it is racial violence or tensions in in specific places, are fortunately a drop in the bucket, a drop in the ocean that is America. The news of any one thing ricochets everywhere, and it can have consequences, no doubt. And each such incident is a tragedy. But we have to remember that psychologically, we are overly conditioned to focus on one piece of bad news at the expense of the day-to-day harmony that a democratic, stable society enjoys in ways that many other countries don't. 
Part of what is happening is the intensification of, of tension that we see in some places is a result of the fact that America is in a very advanced state of ethnic demographic transition. Very few other countries have this degree of ethnic, racial intermingling and cohabitation and diversity in one place. In fact, America is by far the most diverse large country in the world. This is a novel situation. When you have an irreversible level of diversity, the choice ahead is, are we going to continue to see these episodes simply because diversity has crossed a tipping point? Or is everyone going to accept the reality of diversity and find ways to accommodate and to live with it? That's the message that I would want to send to anyone who's involved with or observing these kinds of incidents. One thing that we cannot ignore is, is what is happening outside of the United States. There seems to be an emerging multipolarity between the United States and China and India and Russia. It somehow threatens the identity of an American of the United States, its dominance, its control. It's, do you think we either disassociate the two or we acknowledge what is happening geopolitically and not be fearful of it inside our own doors here in the United States. Actually, demographics and geopolitics are deeply intertwined, and people don't often appreciate that. In a world that is reaching a demographic plateau, where the peak human population lies just around the corner, we might reach 9 billion people, but no more than that. We reach a situation where collecting people means collecting power. America is the greatest proof that collecting people equals collecting power, because what America has been doing for 200 years is collecting people and building its power on the basis of their, well, their prosperity, of their productivity, their wealth creation, their industriousness, their connections to the rest of the world, their ability to go out and represent America as diplomats, as business people, as innovators. So now more than ever, if you want to sustain superpower role in the world, it involves continuing to do that versus far larger countries demographically that are, of course, Asian. And therefore, the U.S. has to see the geopolitics of demographics, which is to say to prove that as with every successful empire in history, to be successful and remain successful, you must be ethnically diverse and to incorporate the talent and the skills and the advantages and the global connections that immigrant populations bring. Now, if I think of everything you said about collecting people and representing the diversity of the planet within the policymakers of our country, that hasn't gone particularly too well in Europe. What is the difference in the story of Europe versus the story of America? As a share of the population, European societies are not as diverse. And they have a history and an identity that's strongly rooted in the ethnographic nation state. That is not the history of America because the history of America involves the colonization of the Native American population, significant inflow of African-American slaves and Europeans themselves from actually all corners of Europe. So America was diverse from day one, not a melting pot, but certainly a patchwork. Europeans don't have that history. So they are struggling to adapt to the necessity of migration and assimilation. Whereas in America, 
one can appreciate that the origin story of America is diversity, you cannot make that same case for a Western European nation state. So they will continue to struggle with it. The irony that their demographics are aging faster, their dependency ratio is higher, their pension systems have uh, far larger obligations to meet in the near term. So they need immigration more than any other place in the world, and they are very much feeling under threat by it. One of many reasons to still be quite optimistic about America in particular, Canada is leading the way in embracing diversity, embracing immigration. Canada, and they do not have the political backlash nor the culture wars about it. Europe can learn from Canada. America can also learn from Canada. Is there a correlation between the economic structure and economic policies to the assimilation of immigrant minorities and the harmony? If you're asking whether America should build something resembling a welfare state, I would say yes, of course. And I think that process is underway from a socio-political standpoint. Diversity has more to do with the political economy of inequality. What I actually meant to ask was that we have a narrative about things such as universal basic income and other such policies. Is that going to positively impact the collective American dream, the Asian American assimilation, or is it going to hurt us? I think it can only help to create the fundamental conditions, the baseline for all Americans, whatever their origin, to have basic economic stability and access to public services would de-escalate some of the tension that exists today. And it would create a foundation for all Americans to engage peacefully and competitively, not view the social and political and economic landscape as, as zero sum in some way. What wrinkle do you think COVID has thrown this model of opportunity, this collective American dream? Well, of course, multiple ways to look at this. The first is just strictly from the setback in race relations, given the terminology around COVID and the so-called China virus and the hate crimes and and so forth. And that's, again, tragic and has spread, unfortunately, too far. We saw, of course, a similar phenomenon after 9-11 with Arabs and South Asians. So this is not unfamiliar that in the moment there is this backlash. In the long run, does it impact the flows of those populations to America? Well, of course not. But it does coincide in this case with a direct geopolitical competition with China. So there are aspects to the issue that have nothing to do with COVID that will impact Chinese populations' presence here. For example, restrictions on Chinese nationals studying high technology subjects so that they do not get access to classified or patented information and that they might potentially, if they were indeed agents of the Chinese state, to transport back to China. That's not the same risk that one faces with other Asian populations that are not engaged in state-sponsored espionage against the United States. You invoked state-sponsored espionage, and I see three or four conflicting realities in front of us. Espionage is one, or perceived espionage. There is a demand for labor in our workforce. There is a desire to be more competitive in the multipolar world. How do we move ahead? What is the message that balances the American dream, the respect for Asian Americans? What does that look like? What we should aspire to is to graduate from referring to Asian Americans as Asian Americans in perpetuity, generation after generation, and 
instead just Americans, right? Italian Americans don't call themselves Italian Americans anymore. They're just Americans. Irish Americans don't call themselves Irish Americans. So instead of thinking about Asian Americans and other communities as hyphenated groups that still represent divided loyalties and mixed identities, rather they are Americans and all Americans have mixed identities at some point in their heritage. We have to think about pushing that agenda, and that obviously involves not just how Asian Americans perceive themselves and represent themselves, but of course, how they are viewed. I think it's something that organizations like yours and all others in this arena need to think about and frame the goal. And bear in mind, I'm an Asian American, but I've spent most of my career traveling outside the United States. Nobody refers to me outside of America as an Asian American. Of course, I'm just an American. So I think that that's an important anecdote to remember. So Parag, let me introduce one more dimension to what you just said, and that is the the recent riots and lawlessness that we saw in January of 2020 at the Capitol Hill or the Antifa riots that we witnessed last year in many cities here in the United States. Given the suspicion that the Asian Americans are constantly under, and then on the other side, given the lawlessness that we witness, do you think that the future of America is more authoritarian? We have come out of a phase just now, or at least an administration that was characterized as having an authoritarian ambition, but not necessarily uh, violating the idea of America as a country built on liberty and individual freedom. There is inherent limits to authoritarianism when you have that celebration of individual liberty. Now, some people would say that authoritarianism is not necessarily about left or right, but it's simply the tyranny of a particular set of ideas. I observe fundamentally in America's vast geography, rich diversity, and most of all, of course, its federal political system, which militates absolutely against a central tyranny of any kind. So I really don't have that as my foremost concern at all. When I look at public policy, I worry still about the weakness of the state the lack of capacity. I look at the infrastructure plan and the Green New Deal, and I see very paltry sums of money that are meant to help an entire country to adapt to the challenges of modernizing infrastructure and adapting to climate change. And I see a federal government that has almost no money to devote to national scale issues that affect everyone irrespective of where they are from. So that to me doesn't sound like a state with an extremely high capacity to be authoritarian. In the legal domain, we see constant checks and balances in, in terms of federalism and the state's ability to shape their own. On the small short-term issues and the big questions of social engineering, I don't see authoritarianism. What do you think we should pay more attention to in our recommendation to our policymakers? What are we not thinking about that we should start talking about? Well, when you phrase it in terms of what policymakers need to understand, advocacy groups have different messages, target different leaders. I think it would be difficult to suddenly have one magical common platform. But for yourselves, going back to this issue of 
we are all Americans. And even if you're not yet a citizen, someone who has planted their roots here. And of course, even if you look at the new legislation for undocumented migrants, there is a big push to give a direct path to citizenship for everyone who is residing on American soil right now. So all of this is pointing in the right direction, which is if you are there now, you're an American. And I think that's point number one. And the more leaders you can convince to make that statement, to toe that line, to send that tweet, to support that legislation, the better. The second, obviously, if we can level the playing field and have access to educational opportunities and to job markets and to mobility around the country for people to work where their skills are required, I think that in the end, we would have a fairer educational and economic system. And therefore, that would also eliminate one of the causes or areas of tension between communities. For example, when it comes to education, why is the solution to fight over which ethnic group gets what percentage of admissions in the same 50 universities? Why are we not talking about having 200 top tier institutions and enough place for everyone who meets the academic standards to be accepted? That is the solution. You enlarge the pie. You don't continue to fight over crumbs. And that's something else that we have to all agree on and devote the resources to. I'm not necessarily a starry-eyed optimist, but there is a solution to every problem. And we have to simply rally around those solutions that can actually be agreed upon. And I don't think that the things that I just mentioned are particularly divisive. So Parag, any parting words before I let you go? Well, I thank you all very much for this conversation. I'm grateful to have had the experience that I've had as an Asian American growing up. And I see the incredible change in the composition of American society for the better, of course, from the time that I was growing up in the 80s and 90s today. It's a much richer demographic complexion. There's no question that this is to America's benefit. I think that part of what Asian Americans can contribute is a global perspective on America as Americans, those who understand not only America, but the rest of the world. And that is also something that perhaps has not been talked about enough, but that can, in an age where America finds itself in competition with Asian powers, those American Asians who truly understand the countries that they've come from and how they work and how one can engage with them in a constructive way, in a healthy competition, and to prevail, to be successful, that I'm not hearing enough of yet. This is a great moment in history for Asian Americans to be bridge builders. So on the one hand, yes, they have to quote unquote prove and demonstrate how American they are, which I don't feel that they should have to. If that is the challenge, it's a challenge that they can meet. But they can also be fantastically productive and constructive bridge builders to the part of the world that matters most, which is, of course, Asia, far better than those people who have no exposure to Asia at all. So this is where, again, the geopolitics and the demographics come together. Having a large Asian population right now could be the greatest asset for America, and it should be framed in that way. Thank you for sharing all that wisdom with us. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for grounding us in the context, the larger, the bigger context that we often fail to see. And I, on behalf of the entire Asian American or the American community here, wish you all the best in whatever you're pursuing. What an outstanding and excellent interview. Rajiv, what's your takeaway? It was quite an interesting conversation with Parag. Parag said two things that stood out to me, which I want to share today as my takeaways. First, it is to start thinking of ourselves as Americans, just Americans. It is us who have to stop identifying ourselves 
with our hyphenated identities. Call it hyphenated or mixed, but it is we who have to stop using those identities to address the perception of our divided loyalty. The second takeaway for me was an unexpected vector, the size of the pie, as Barack calls it. Why are we continuing to fight over the crumbs when we should rather be thinking about enlarging the pie? Essentially, it addresses the core issues of fear of the outsiders, not because they are outsiders, but simply because many think that there isn't enough in the United States for everybody, not enough jobs, not enough universities. I did not anticipate talking about geopolitics with Parag, but not only did we do just that, in retrospect, this conversation would not have been complete without talking about geopolitics. I think that the topic warrants another conversation with him at a later date. Jack, you also have listened to this conversation. What do you think? Thank you, SK. Rajiv and Parag, your interview is fascinating and provides an international perspective of America's strengths and challenges. I was particularly struck by Parag's analysis of the United States' unique characteristic and strength as the most ethnically diverse country in the world. Also, the idea that we need incorporate our Asian Americans' understanding of Asia is a great strategy to have Asians better and more favorably understand America's goals and ideals. For me, my main takeaway is we can be more Asian in America and more American in Asia and be the most effective bridge builder between the two rivaling powers. America needs immigrants to build a strong nation. Asian American can play a role in balancing the freedom to innovate with the authoritative power to manage our democracy. The AAUC podcast is supported by our active individual and organization members. For more information about AAUC, please go to our website, asamunitycoalition.org. Thank you for listening to our AAUC podcast series on building our collective American dream. Please subscribe and comment on our podcast. Do tune in to our next podcast episode, which will be aired on the last Sunday of October 31st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The topic will be on voting rights and redistricting with Christine Chen from APIA Vote and other experts on the subject.